Welcome to the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Stephen Garber, currently the Senior Fellow for Vocation and the Common Good with the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust in Vancouver, Washington. During his many years in ministry to students, Steve noticed some thrived spiritually while others did not. He began studying what the common factors were that caused some to thrive, eventually earning a Ph.D. in the philosophy of learning from Penn State University. His research led to his first book, The Fabric of Faithfulness, Weaving Together Belief and Behavior During the University Years, where he discusses the three critical success factors he identified. Now, almost three decades later, the fabric of faithfulness continues to be widely read, and these three principles continue to help countless students flourish as Christians during their university years and beyond. And for this reason, the subtitle was changed in the second edition, which we will discuss. Steve, welcome to the show. It's good to see you again. Well, it's great to see you too. So in 1996, you wrote The Fabric of Faithfulness, Weaving Together Belief and Behavior During the University Years. It was named one of Christianity Today's Books of the Year in 1998, and it continues to be widely read and and discussed. And so I'd be first interested in how you got interested in this topic. It's a a good question, of course, because most of life is pretty autobiographical for all of us. It is. So when I was a boy, I thought I would be like my father and then my grandfather and but then I didn't turn out to be in the end. Uh, <laughs> uh, my grandfather sold cattle in Colorado, and my father was a scientist in California. And I thought I would be like one of them or some combination of them. And, and then it didn't happen in my life. My father's long interest in his work was in how do you help a, a healthy seed become a healthy plant six, seven months later? California uh, raises probably half of the nation's fruits and vegetables, and and he was worked for the University of California as a plant pathologist. So his interest is how do you help a farmer plant a seed, go into a seedling, and then six, seven months later become healthy enough to harvest and there'll be you know, fruitfulness to the effort you made for the year. Well, that wasn't what I did with my life. But what I did, I suppose, maybe 15 years later, began to realize that my, my interest, having grown out of my university staff experiences in my mid-20s, uh, was wondering maybe being perplexed by this dilemma, uh, this quandary. Uh, why is it that some students who I'd come to love with my heart time and time and time with them over, over the course of months and years, and they would read the books I wanted them to read and come to the meetings I asked them to come to and go to the conferences I wanted them to go to? And, and then why is it that some students seem to deepen faith and hope and love over the following years, and why some didn't? And that really began to eat away at my heart because I had loved these people. I eventually decided to do a PhD on that question. And so I spent probably 10 years of my life thinking about that more formally, more structurally. The fabric of faithfulness really grew out of the ground of my experience, the love of my heart, longing for to see students flourish, to see them grow up and deepen and go on in life, but realizing that some did and some didn't. Right. And then... I probably spent some years of my life, actually, in that period of time, thinking about the pedagogy of Jesus. Mm. Just wondering, so how did Jesus teach? And I really did give a lot of time to that question. And 
one of the most intriguing little windows into the teaching of Jesus was that the very first of all the parables, we call the parable of the seed in the soils. Oh, yeah. The story of a farmer. You can imagine a Kansas wheat farmer, you know, with his bag of seed and 150 years ago, throwing seed here and throwing seed there. And of course, Jesus tells the tale in a certain way. And it's this soil and this one, this one, this one. And then, then he says, you have ears to hear, then hear. And then he goes away. And it's only when the disciples want to know it. What did you mean, master, by this? Mm. He says, well, I meant this, actually. There's no mathematical ratio given by Jesus that somehow binds us to the same numbers you know, in our life and time. Right. But it's intriguing and maybe sobering to realize that only one out of the four seeds became fruitful. Most didn't for all kinds of reasons. And so I think in my own teaching, my own writing, my own labor of love over the years, it's been always, you know, in light of the story of Jesus, the pedagogy of Jesus, the longing of my heart that somehow the hours I spend, the heart that I give away would be somehow more fruitful than not in the lives of, of the students I love. So what's the thesis of your book once you've done the research and try to put it all together? Yeah. Well, the book has two, two parts to it. The first half of the book is looking at why is it so hard under the conditions of what we could call modern and postmodern consciousness? I don't think, for example, we live in a postmodern age or world at this point. I think we live in a modernizing, become postmodernizing world. Because I live in Washington, D.C., I've often said to people, as long as I have to fly in and out of Dallas Airport, it isn't a postmodern world yet. The numbers really do matter a lot to the air traffic controllers. They matter to me too. It isn't just whatever completely. Right. So anyway, the book is looking at under the conditions we call modern and postmodern consciousness, where reality, truth, meaning are being called into question in very contemporary ways that are shaped by the you know the schools of thought and life that shape you know the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard to form a coherent faith under those conditions? Mm. I've used the language to put belief and behavior together with more integrity, with more care, with more thought, with more coherence. The second half of the book is looking at, so what habits of heart mark people who keep on keeping on over the course of life? Mm. And it's really a look into people I talked to who were like 20 years later in life after their undergraduate years, who were into their 40s, who were in some ways what the sociologists would describe as people who were beyond the valley of the diapers, in the years of settling into life. Now they were actually living the life they were going to be living for the rest of life for the most part. And questions I was asking were questions about, so who were you 20 years ago? Mm. Here you are in your 40s. You're somebody who's deepened faith, hope, and love over time rather than discarded it. Well, talk to me about who you were and what you were thinking and what you were doing and what were the influences on your life 20 years ago. Right. In many ways, the second half of the book is a report on what I learned from those conversations. Well, I have a question that comes from the first part of the book uh, where you write, the formation of moral meaning is critical during the university years. Mm-hmm. Would you say a little bit about what moral meaning is? That's a great, good question, Stan. Um, even took a little note in a book I'm reading today, and I put on the side at the margins of the book, moral meaning, isn't it? It's a pregnant phrase in my mind. So moral meaning has to do with not so much when I ask Stan Wallace, so what do you believe, Stan? And you say, well, I believe in this. And you might say, you might quote the Apostles' Creed to me. You might quote the Westminster Confession to me. You might say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, really. But what moral meaning is probing at 
is not so much what you say you believe, but how you live. Okay. What are the axiological assumptions that actually shape the way you live your life? Mm. So it isn't so much, this is the creed I confess. These are the beliefs that I, I inherited. You know, of course I believe them. But it's actually you know, looking at, especially in the context of the book, realizing that from about age 20 to age 30, generally speaking, people are, are beginning to negotiate what they're going to believe and how they're going to live that shapes the rest of life. So it's more in pushing beyond, did you read this book by such and such? Did you go to this conference about this and that? You know? But it's more, you know, who are you now at age 22 and 25 and 28? as these ideas begin to have legs in your life. So really it's more what you really believe or what you incarnate, not just what you say you could affirm. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, Dan. Okay, that makes sense. So in that same passage, you go on and say, the modern world makes accomplishing this, the, the formation of moral meaning, mm-hmm. incredibly hard. And why is that now? Well, of course, there's pages and pages and chapters about that in the book. I mean, on the one hand, I w- I've said this in the introduction to the book, that this question I've taken up in the late 20th century is a very perennial question. What we might say is, well, this is what it means to be 20 in the year 2000. But if you remember it all, I've actually written about a few other people in history who in that same period of time were asking the very same questions that you know, the 20-year-olds of our time were asking. Mm-hmm. So I was basically wanting to say that we are perennial people, even though the spirit of the age changes over time. And this idea has been bandied about. This idea is argued for. And this way of living is now new to us. You know? Yes, that's true. And I believe that. We need to pay attention to that. But my deeper argument would be that we are, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we are perennial people. And things that are deep, deep, deep for us don't change because they can't. Because we're still made in the image of God and we live in God's world. And so those realities do not change century by century, culture by culture. I would say, you know, what are the reasons that makes that be difficult, which is perennial? The word adolescence is a pretty brand new word historically. It wasn't used before the 20th century. So we didn't talk about an adolescent or the age of adolescence before you know, the 20th century. And we don't have to use it today, but of course, most of us know what we mean by that. But One of the most interesting discussions in the last 15, 20 years has been the lengthening of adolescence, the more we move from 20th to 21st century. For you would have said at a certain point, well, maybe from 12 to 18, 19 or something. Well, people are not talking about it going into 26, 27, 28, 29. Right. Well, that's worth paying attention to, isn't it? Wherever we put the boundary on the words child and adult, my interest has been how do you move from being a child of faith to an adult of faith. You know, wherever you want to put that in terms of the years of someone's life, all of us are moving through that at some point in some way. All of us are. The something dramatic and terrible happens where a person just doesn't, cannot move from being a child into the life of an adult. Right. At a certain point, it no longer is my parents think this way, my grandparents believe like this. Sometime it begins to be, what do I think? How am I going to live my life? And it was that crucible stand that drew me into 10 years or so of more serious, thoughtful, formal attention to the question. I would say, you know, one of the things about right now that's, but again, it's not brand new. It just has different names and dynamics, but we live in a a time in history where the idea of, is it true, 
is largely scorned by the world now in one sense. I mean, mm-hmm. you're enough of a student of history yourself, Stan, to know that the age of the Enlightenment threw that into question hundreds of years ago. It didn't happen in 1999 or 1965 or something. Right. It didn't happen with, you know, the year 2015 or something like that. You know, we have been this disjuncture between facts and values, for example, yeah. which sort of dominates the modern world in some ways. The KUs of the world, the, just to pick a local university. Sure. Largely, almost completely, the assumption will be that you're going to be taught a view of life and history and reality that is born of the Enlightenment. And any other idea would be pretty much an outlier. Hmm. You could talk about that in university or Campus Crusade or at church on Sunday, but come on. When you get into history and biology and la 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 la, it has nothing to do with what happens in the real the real world of the real university. Yeah, and you see, if somebody's going to make his or her way through that, you've got to have deeper sources to draw upon. So, would you say the formation of moral meaning is not harder in our era because it's a perennial opportunity and challenge, but it's just hard in different ways? Yeah, I exactly say that exactly. You remember this, perhaps, Stan, but. You know, in the beginning of the book, I talk about St. Augustine, mm-hmm. and you read the confessions, and, you know, it sounds so contemporary, and so like, it happened yesterday. Sure does. You know, you wrote this last week, and you think, well, this is 1,500 years ago, of course, in Africa. But you realize that, you know, in the painful self-revelation of his own autobiography coming into being, you know, he was wrestling with the very same things that, you know, the 18, 19-year-olds at KU are wrestling with, yeah. astoundingly. I talk about Alexis de Tocqueville you know, in the mm-hmm. beginning of the book and just write some about his own wrestlings as a, a young man becoming a more mature man and moving from being a child to being an adult. The same language, the same dynamics, the same pressures were Alexis de Tocqueville's 200 years ago as a Frenchman. So yes, I would say what you, how you summed it up is exactly how I would see it. Well, then you take the next step and relate it to higher education and, and go on and say, higher education under the impact of modern consciousness more often than not, excludes the deepest human questions, those of meaning and morality, from the curriculum. Why is that true of modern higher education, and how might students experience that? Yeah. Well, just because, again, you're living in Olathe, Kansas, and I know a little bit about Kansas and KU. In the 1970s, there were two professors who were teaching Western civilization as a course of studies at KU. They were professors of the classics, actually. And both people of serious faith, interestingly. Mm. But they were introducing these students, these kids from Wichita and, and Emporia and Hayes and Topeka, to this classical mind, which made sense of the world in a certain way, born of deeply formed Christian faith, mm. intriguingly, surprisingly. Well, that went on for a number of years until the protests began to be too loud because these innocent you know, kids from, I'll just pick a place, from Emporia, were coming to KU and becoming Christians in these courses because they were so intrigued by the intellectual substance yeah. of the books they were reading. They can really, you know, thoughtful people think things like this. Well, you know, after a while, that they were excluded and actually basically kicked out of the KU, uh, even though they were senior professors. Wow. That's a short version of the story. Yeah. I would say, you know, there may be exceptions to that. And clearly there are sometimes by this professor of engineering here, this professor of biology, this professor of history here. And I, I know those people exist and I, they're my friends and they're your friends too. But as a, an intellectual ethos, the contemporary university doesn't allow those kind of questions to be asked. They're seen as irrelevant to what the real work of the university is about. Right. And that's not just true in Lawrence, Kansas. It's true in 
Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I spent an hour talk yesterday with somebody who's at UNC in Chapel Hill. I have conversations week by week, people all over the country and the world. And it's it's all over the place where the intellectual ethos born of certain assumptions about reality exclude by intention this view of life and the world that's born of the Jewish Christian understanding of things. Which ties back in your comment earlier about the Enlightenment's influence on the modern consciousness. Yeah, right. So if you're going to be somebody who comes from an honestly Christian family, you know, into the KUs of the world and not just privatizes faith mm-hmm. or so compartmentalizes faith. Well, you see all day long, I just go along because I have to go along. But then on Tuesday nights, I go to the Bible study in my dormitory, right. you know, where I, you know, other things are thought and believed. But if you're going to somehow more coherently connect what you believe with how you behave, your worldview with your way of life, you're going to have to be able to have intellectual resources that can help you do that. And that relates to something else you write about in the book that I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about. You discuss the importance of understanding the reason for higher education in order to flourish in that context. Yeah. Unpack that a little bit for us. Well, it's a big question, isn't it? Because, you know, again, thinking about where you are in the world, you have a KU and a K-State, you know, and they are born of state-mandated charters for how we're going to flourish more completely as a people in this place called Kansas. So on the one hand, you've got the KUs and the K-States of the world, but then you've got, you know, just drive across I-70 a little bit, you've got the Washington Universities of the world too. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, the world of higher education is broad brushstroke speaking. It's the secular-spirited public universities, the University of Missouri, the University of Kansas. Is. But then it's, of course, a whole variety of more privately funded universities like Washington University or Washburn University in Topeka. Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds and hundreds of schools that are represented like that, really. And then you have the subcultural world of the competitive vision of what life and learning is about with schools that are faith-formed of whether they are Catholic like a Notre Dame or whether they're evangelical like a Wheaton or whether they are Baptist like a Baylor. And so these schools, of course, have their own competitive hopes for finding a place in the appeal of an 18-year-old who wants to go off to do more study in life. So I would say that in some ways, it's, it's a good conversation to have a parent with a child to just talk through, you know, what are you looking for? What kind of a school do you want to be in? What are the challenges for you going to be in a place like KU as different than Washburn University, as different than Wheaton College? I remember being in Chicago for some years ago when I was you know, speaking between the University of Chicago for part of the week and then Wheaton College for part of the week. What I began to realize after talking to students in both places was that the pressures were the same but different in both settings, but they didn't know each other enough at all to understand that about each other. Right. In some ways, the University of Chicago students had a certain disdain for the, you know, the Wheaton College students. They picked an easier option, they, they thought. You know, they have to fight it out there. Well, we have to fight it out here. We have to do a second level of study here to make sense of our studies as, as students at Chicago. The Wheaton students, of course, in some ways, gloried in everything in place all the T's were crossed, all the I's were dotted. Ideas, curriculum, faculty, textbooks, everything was in some ways meant to be a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. But what I found, of course, with the Wheaton students, not unlike the, you know, the Chicago students, they too wondered about, is what I'm learning to think here actually true to the way the world really is? Mm. And to me, if I were to say anything to you and to people who are your friends in this podcast world, to me... It's helping 
the 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old person began to find his or her way into having a way of making sense of life for the rest of life. I remember talking to a week student a few years ago who was my student here in Washington for a year. And uh, at the end of the year, this was a post-university experience here. And at the end of the year, I had lunch with her and I asked her, so what did you learn this year? She said, well, this, 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 but maybe to sum it all up, maybe what I learned that, that, that truth is woven into the very fabric of the universe. Hmm. I thought, well, if you put it that way, then this year has been a good year in my life, actually. Because I've longed for that. I've hoped for I've given myself away to you for this year that you might somehow come to that clear sense of identity and mission and purpose and vocation. That truth is woven into the very fabric of the universe. Mm-hmm. So whether we go again to the KUs or the Wheaton Colleges, somehow the challenge is how are you going to come through with a sense that what I've learned to believe to be true about God and the world actually makes sense of the way I have to live in the world. Well, and as a former guest on this show, John Stone Street had mentioned, you've really got to know what something is for before you can evaluate it and know if it's a, a good a good one. And so it sounds like you're saying that uh, understanding that the universe is for being able to understand the world and live well in it is is the ultimate role of higher education. Is that am I hearing you right? I think that's I mean in one sense. Why why do people why do alumni you know, still dig into their coffers and support you know, next year's annual budget at KU or Wheaton College? Other than on some level, they buy into the four proposal, the four, you know, we are for this. Right. And if you give money to us this next year, you know, what we will promise to do is that we will be more fully for this one more year into the future. And I think that's exactly right. And I think in some ways, whether you're 17 and know that about KU or not, you know, when you get to be 19, 20, 21, you begin to realize that there's a certain perspective on life and the world that's being taught here. Mm-hmm. If I'm not going to just, again, privatize my faith, but can actually grow up into a more mature, open, you know, deepened faith, I'm going to have to be able to think these questions through about what, who am I, what do I believe in the light of what I'm being required in some ways taught to believe here at this secular spirited university, which isn't an evil place. I'm not saying that. Right. But it has certain reasons for being, a certain raison d'etre. And if you're naive about that as a 19, 20-year-old, you're probably going to get swept away. Which raises the question, how do students not get swept away? How do they flourish? And that's the latter part of your book that identifies three essential things to, to pursue as a student. And I'd love to talk a little bit about them, starting with worldview, which you've mentioned a few times. Right. So could you define what a worldview is to begin with? Sure. Well, just to linger over the word for a moment, Stan, it's a view of the world, isn't it? I think the way we understand the, the origin of the word itself, it's from a German word, Weltanschauung, which is a, you know, a view of life in the world. It's a way of making sense of life in the world. And everybody in the face of the earth has a worldview, mm. whether they don't own it or identify it or talk about it or not. We all do, really. You don't have to go to a university to have a worldview. Everybody on the face of the earth has a certain way of seeing life in the world. So what do I mean by that? And why does it matter here? Well, in this questions that I began to ask people who were 20 years later from their university years, I don't think that absolutely inductive or deductive study is possible in anything. I think we can lean certain directions and hope for certain things. But, right. but I would say this was a more inductive study. It was more inductive than deductive because I didn't go into it with a certain set of 
well, okay, there's this and this and this. Now make my point for me. No. I actually was asking more open-hearted questions. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And I had the interviews transcribed, actually. And as I began to read the transcriptions and think through what I'd heard, what began to be clear to me over the course of weeks and months of interviewing people was that people who had kept at it, who had deepened convictions rather than discarded convictions over the years from 20 to 30 to 40, were marked by three habits of heart. And the first was this idea of a worldview. To put it in other terms, it was that they developed a way of making sense of things that could make sense of things in a pluralizing, secularizing world. I came to believe, and I still believe it to be completely true, that unless you are somebody who has begun to have the intellectual tools to account for truth in a pluralizing, secularizing world, by the time you get to be 28, 29, 30, it may not be that you give up on God completely, but you'll have given up on the attempt to make sense of a coherent life and faith. Because there's no reason, I mean, life is too hard for all of us, the two things that get in the way of niceness and easiness and happiness. You know? right. So unless you're going to be somebody who actually believes it's true, why would you keep at it, actually? Yeah. And I think in some ways it goes back to that, first of all, the parables of Jesus. Why, you know, again, there's no mathematical ratio that we're bound to by, by this, but it's worth thinking about. Only one out of the four people who heard the word of, of God stuck with it. Because it gets harder for lots of reasons. It just gets harder. So I would argue, unless you are able to work your way into a faith that can be accounted for by reality, by meaning, by truth, again, you don't have to be a philosopher to be this kind of person. I'm just saying a serious, mature Christian who has reasons to understand that what I believe is just Stan Wallace's viewpoint on things, Steve Garber's views of these things, is actually true to the way the world really is. As my student put it to me a few you know, years ago, that truth is woven into the very fabric of the universe. So how can students develop a Christian worldview? Well, what I argued, you know, again, in the book is that, you know, on the one hand, it is in reading the right books in the right time in the right way. That's part of the story. It is that. If we were in another room in my house, my study, you could just see it's lined with books. I love books, you know. Yeah. I love books. I love books. I love books. <laughs> but, you know, I'm also, again, enough of a student of the pedagogy of Jesus to realize that the very first words we have in the Gospel of John are about Jesus, and the word became flesh. Mm -hmm. And so I would come to pretty deeply committed to the proposition that we have to be aware of that and realize that ideas have to have legs to be made sense of, that words have to become flesh to understand them. So if I'm talking about the need of forming a worldview, reading the right books at the right time in the right way, and there are, you know, good lists of good books like that, which we could talk more about. But I would say at the same time, we have to see that ideas can get worked out. So if worldview is the first of these habits of heart, the second is a mentor, a teacher, somebody who can incarnate, who can embody the worldview that I'm beginning to call my own. Because that's a critical piece of the learning, I would argue. It can't just be that I read this book then. You know, mm -hmm. I read these three books back then, you see, because if you don't believe that, in fact, honest people live this way with meaning and integrity and winsomeness and affection and responsibility, uh, it's not persuasive, I don't think. It just isn't persuasive. Because in all of life, we have to see that words can become flesh to believe them to be true. Right. 
the mentor incarnates the ideas and gives us an idea of what it looks like to actually live this out in the real world. That's exactly right, Stan. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what, what should students look for in a mentor? A young freshman just showing up on campus, wants to find a mentor. Yeah. Uh, how's he go about that? Where does he look? What's he looking for? I would say to be aware that this matters is important to you, probably. Hmm. If all you ate were hamburgers and fries all day long, you know, as a freshman, and you never, ever had an apple, never, ever had yogurt, never, ever had an orange, never had a salad, well, the diet over the course of the first year would be not so healthy, actually. You have to know, in a sense, that good books by themselves aren't enough. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to actually be apprenticed into faith, I'm going to have to be somebody who seeks out somebody who can show me that these words can become flesh. So I've long been arguing this image because it makes sense to me, Stan, that the deepest things in life, the deepest, truest things in life, we learn over the shoulder and through the heart. That's well said. We just do. And so I would be looking for somebody who would be willing to open up his or her life in some way, some honest way. It doesn't have to be that the person arrives in the end of, end of August and says, okay, mentor, here I come, you know. Right. But it could be, I'm going to be praying about that. I'm going to be thinking about that. I'm going to be, my eyes are going to be open to that. I'm going to be looking for somebody who I respect, somebody who I think I, I like, somebody who might be willing to open up her life or his life to me, somebody who would allow me to come on in for a while and begin to actually to see that in fact these aren't just ideas but actually it's a way of life that I want to become mine as well. I know there are a lot of Christian professors who desire those types of relationships. I know you know many of them as well. How might students go about finding somebody on faculty who might play that role? Right. It depends on where you are, of course. I mean it could be that the church you're a part of and the university community has a few professors, you know, who worship there as well. It could be that you ask the pastor, are there professors that you know of who I should get to know? Sometimes in just the student buzz of a particular university, everybody knows that so-and-so is an honest and serious Christian person. Right. Again, it isn't only that the person have a sincere personal faith, in my mind, that would be important, but it would be that the person has learned to think Christianly about the vocation of being a professor at a university. Mm. And that would be, in my mind, almost more important than does he or she have personal faith. But has that faith actually shaped the way that I understand the work of my life? Right. Because you see, if we don't get those people as our teachers, then we only continue on the privatizing, compartmentalizing faith, which is of no use to God or the world. We will return to our show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important Christian professors are in the lives of their students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ. And they can have a lifelong influence as mentors to Christian students during their college years. Please consider helping to equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. And now, back to the show. So uh, there's, uh, there's a third element you talk about in the book, in addition to 
the importance of worldview formation and mentors, and that is community, because, uh, you know, in, in the first and second case, it's, uh, it, it's private and one-on-one, but, but you're also making the case that you need to be part of a bigger grouping community gathering of faithful brothers and sisters to, to journey with. So, right. so wh- why is that so important? Yeah. Well, that's a good question, Stan. And some, it's in some ways worth a long walk to kind of talk it through with somebody, isn't it? And if there's any social dynamic that is true of your marriage and your family and your neighborhood and your city, that's true of mine. It is, how do you hold together the me and the we in a healthy way in life? Mm. You know, marriages stumble over that. Families stumble over that. Sure. Churches stumble over that. Because they're both realities. They're both true. I'm not just me in this world. I'm always in some deeper you know, mysterious sense, I'm also we too, from the very get-go of my life. On this point here, I would argue that if the faith is going to be made real over time, there has to be somewhere, some way in which you have learned to honor and understand the necessary me-we character of life. Mm. That in some ways, it's me saying, yes, I believe this to be true. But it's also profoundly important to realize that I won't stick with that conviction personally. I just won't, because it doesn't happen in this world. It just doesn't really. Apart from the choice to enter in again and again and again to more communal corporate expressions of faith. We just wither on the vine. People that I talked with, you know, in my interviewing were people who had gone to the KUs or the Wheatons or the Stanfords or the wherever else is in the world. And they did three or four or five years at a place like that. But just to again, keep it local there, they moved from Lawrence then to Kansas City. And what did they learn to do? Because they were, their own formation of, and faith had been communal and corporate. They sought out a body of believers, hmm. more communal expression of faith, once they moved to Leewood or to Olathe or to Overland Park, realizing that that's going to be an important part of my own, my own ability to keep on keeping on. And then, of course, you know, after five years in Overland Park and working for Hallmark, they got a job offer in Dallas. And then, of course, they moved to Dallas and they made the same decision to seek out again another more communal corporate expression of faith. You know? And then they were in Dallas for 10 years and they got asked to move to Chicago. You know, They did the same thing again, really. It just gets too hard on your own. And we just don't keep up for all kinds of rule the flesh and the devil reasons. Are there having people in some ways who come along beside us and say, Steve, I'm with you in this. I'm, I'm part of this too with you. I still believe this is true like you do. Come on, can't give up. And when things are going well, it's so hard sometimes to seek that out and make those times a priority since we are such an individualistic breed. But then uh, when those hard times come, uh, there, there's no support. And uh, I've seen that happen so often as well. So how do students find a healthy community on campus? Probably a thousand different ways to do it. Just imagining again the 17 and a half year moving from Overland Park to Lawrence, you know, and the you know, first week of school, they're going to be a whole bunch of tables someplace in the student union or someplace like that with this group, this group, this group, not only the chess club and the, you know, archaeology club and the repelling club and the orienteering club and the, but there'll be university there and the Bucamus Crusade there and there'll be, you know, RUF there. I would say that that clearly is a way in. 
I would say, because this is something that you probably believe like I do, that we haven't talked about this, it matters a lot to find a group of people who will push and shove you into a deepened, honest faith. This is not KU. This is another university in America that you know about because it's very well known, a very prestigious private university. I was teaching a course here in Washington a few years ago, and I was having my students read Proper Confidence by Leslie Newbigin, which is a book I always ask my eager students to read. So my pedagogy was to have them read a book like this week by week, then write a paper and then read the paper out loud for everybody else to listen to. Then we would talk about their paper. And well, that day I noticed that this young woman read her paper, always bright, always thoughtful, always articulate, but she was crying a little bit as she read the paper. I seemed too much to ask her during class, are you okay today? So after class, I walked up, and I said, are you doing okay? And they said, oh, Dr. Garber, I just didn't, didn't know that, that Christians thought about things like this. I was a part of, I won't name the group, but you know the group, part of that ministry at my university for four years. I grew in my knowledge of God and my faith, and I'm so grateful for that. But these were the debates of my university while I was there, and we never, ever talked about that. Right. And I never, ever knew that Christians wrote books to help make sense of things like that. So here she'd come out of four years of prestigious, rigorous, you know, demanding university, increasingly serious faith in those years where she was there but never having connected the deepening faith with the life of the university. So I would say, you know, there's some ways I'm saying, yes, these groups exist on campuses. Of course they do. But you're going to have to be somebody who's conscientious about your own maturing faith in a probably a social milieu of campus ministries that more often than not offer a privatized, compartmentalized faith. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. Let me follow up with a, a question. Sometimes it's easy to tell if a group is healthy in those ways or not, but sometimes not. Do you have some tips to ferret that out and help students know before they really get involved and are sort of locked in uh, relationally to a group? Yeah. How, how healthy the group is in, in those broader ways in terms of their, their formation? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, I would want to caution against being the chief critic of, you know, the world. Sure. You know, and saying, well, okay, you're an 18 year old that you are, you're going to be on the pinnacle of all criticism. And, you know, you're looked at and say, well, they don't do this quite right. They don't do this quite right. They don't do this quite right. I mean, I don't want to be that kind of curmudgeonly person here in the conversation stand. I don't want to be that kind of person. Right. But at the same time, it's true that I've had, because of who I've been and what I've done with my life, I've literally spoken to the global leadership of all these organizations, the navigators, the crusades, the universities, I know them all pretty well, frankly, because in some ways, they're interested in the same questions you are here today. That's why I've been drawn in to talk about these things. I would say in different kinds of ways, all three of those groups stumble over this very issue, you know, in a sad way. To make them evil organizations? No. You know, should you stay away completely? No. But if you're going to be somebody who makes his or her way through the university years and avoids the compartmentalization... You're going to have to have other influences in your life that in some ways push you beyond the contours of what this group probably will teach you. I'll just name one group here, not because it's bad, because it's a good group, of course, in many ways. But I was teaching a course on vocation you know, here in Washington a few years ago for four weeks in a big church in the city. And you know, the last evening, I won't name the group. I won't now. I'll just say there's a group that you would, you would know. Yeah. But a guy walked up to me and said, can I talk to you some more about this? I said, sure. And he gave me his card and it said, he was the senior advisor to the president of such and such an organization. I thought, huh, that's interesting. Then he said these words. He said, 
we've been teaching vocation wrong for 50 years. Mm. Would you help me with this? Wow. Now, I happen to know his group pretty well, and I knew that was true. They had been offering a privatized account of faith for 50 years. Students had come to repentant faith, to you know, new life in Christ through the ministry. Praise be to God for all that. But again and again, by the thousandfold, students had come through their experience with this organization with a privatized faith. And I would say, more often than not, a faith that didn't last very long because it could not account for the questions of the world very well. Sure. So let me broaden the conversation just a bit. And uh, you've alluded to this, but I want to put it out more explicitly. You know, the book is written to help students during their university years. We've been talking about that. But all of these three factors are clearly relevant for a believer at any stage in his or her Christian life to continue to develop a robust Christian worldview, to continue to seek out mentors and uh, to continue to seek out healthy fellowship, which you'd mentioned. So are there uh, ways that listeners who aren't university students can think about doing that that might be a little bit different or that you might want to comment on that you've seen right. uh, amongst the adult population trying to walk faithfully with Christ? Yeah. Well, again, Stan, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I wrote the book out of the context of my own life, you know, 20 some years ago. And, right. you know, so I was in some way writing the book explicitly in my mind for students and those who cared for students, whether they were the campus ministers, whether they're professors of university. That was my audience initially. I was at a pretty well, a, a musician's home in Nashville, probably seven, eight years into the life of the book. So he would take a, a course someplace at a theological seminary because he was kind of interested in his, own, in his own deepening of faith in that future of life. And he said, I asked to read your book. And he said, you know, I want to say to you, you know, in his own kind of wonderful, out, outrageous, you know, loving way, he said, this isn't just for university students. You know, this is for all of us. You should retitle the, title of the book, actually, because it's actually a book for everybody. I said, huh, it's interesting, really. Well, I began thinking about it over the days and weeks following that conversation. You know, after 10 years of the life of the book, and it had a lot of printings, and people had been reading it all over the world in a wonderful way, the publisher thought we should do a second edition of the book. So the second edition has a new subtitle, and it's no longer weaving together belief and behavior during the university years, but it's weaving together belief and behavior. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of people use this intriguingly uh, stand over time in very different kinds of settings. One of the most interesting ones to me was of a, a man here in Washington, D.C., who spent his lifetime in the Pentagon-related worlds. I was an Air Force Academy graduate and began to, over the course of his life, began to be somebody who was always teaching leaders how to be leaders. That was the focus of his life eventually. He wrote a book a few years ago that was a comparison and contrasting of two men, Thomas Jefferson and William Wilberforce. And the question he was asking was this. He said, I was intrigued that they both had the same, same time in history, same social class background, same family history, educational background, really, same vocational political you know, interest, actually. Oh. Both introduced bills to abolish slavery early on in their political careers. But Jefferson walked away from it, and Wilberforce didn't. What he did in this book was to take that same paradigm of a worldview, a mentor, a community, and looked at these two men's lives in light of why one stuck with his commitment and passion about slavery and why one walked away. Fascinating. That's one example. I gave you more, but that's one way that has been worked out. 
Well, that's what I so enjoyed about your book were so many of those uh, illustrations that incarnate these principles. And your your new book does that as as well in, in different ways. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Well, I could, and in some ways I could relate it to the first book. Uh, but after you know some years of taking this book out all over the country and the world, I began to realize that people who had kept at faith over time into their 40s, again, beyond the valley of the diapers, every person like that had suffered. Everybody I met had been disappointed. Yeah. Everyone I met had some grief they were now bearing. Everyone I met was, had been somebody who had been you know, surprised by the brokenness of the world, really. And yet they were still at it. They still were choosing to keep at it, which began to really intrigue me, thinking, huh, you, know, I would have, you might have thought, well, you face this, you hear this, you experience this. Well, I'd be sorry if you did, but I can understand you decide, I can't do this anymore. This is no longer what I can believe to be true. But what I found instead, Stan, with people like that, there was a, refi- a refiner's fire experience for them in terms of the deepening of faith and hope and love. Well, as I pondered that, began thinking that through, I began to realize that um, there was a question sort of lurking that actually is the question from beginning to end of the book, Visions of Vocation. And the question is, can you know the world and still love the world? Can you have the eyes of your heart open to the hurt, the wound, the sorrow, the grief, the injustice of the world? And rather than becoming either cynical or stoical about it, could you actually, in Jesus' name, be able to see yourself responsible for love's sake, for the way things are and ought to be in the world? So this book is called Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good. And even more recently, there's a book in the last year, a book of essays uh, with photos, interestingly, called The Seamless Life, a tapestry of love and learning, worship and work. Take all those words together, The Seamless Life, a tapestry of love, learning, worship and work. It really is another window into the same hope I have that could we be people who form a more coherent faith, a more seamless life. So those are the things that are pretty deep in who I am. Those are so helpful to contemplate and to hear from you in the, in the winsome uh, ways you have of putting that. I, I appreciate that. Are there any other things that as we draw to a close, you'd want to make sure we touch on? The last chapter of the Visions of Vocation book is called Learning to Live Proximately. What I was arguing in that last chapter was that you could be as intentional as you ought to be and should be and could be about a sense of vocation, which is yours in the world. And with integrity, really try to work it out with honesty and care and love and purpose and commitment. Yes, 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 you should do that, really. But at the end of the day, because we live in a now but not yet world, it won't be done perfectly. All good things won't happen, even after all the hard work and hope that's yours. So you're going to have to learn to live proximately, was the way I put it in the last chapter of the book. The last essay in this Seamless Life collection is about the proximate as well. This book I'm working on right now is about making peace with the proximate. With, with the here and now. With the here and now, realizing that, that to choose for something is a good thing. Because you see, something isn't nothing. Even if it's not everything, mm-hmm. it's not nothing. But something that's honest and true and right and real is worthy of your life and mine. In some ways, it's the best we get in this life. So with integrity, with hope, you know, with love, with commitment to purpose, to say, well, this is true in your marriage, Stan, as it is in my marriage. Because even with all the heartfelt promises you make on your wedding day, it isn't perfect. 
And you have to make peace with the proximate. That's just true in the most personal part of life, like a marriage. But it's also true in the public squares of life as well, I would argue, where if you're going to be somebody working out public justice in Topeka, Kansas or Washington, D.C., you're going to stay at it, stick with it. You're going to have to learn how to make peace with proximate justice because you're never going to get everything, really. And those who imagine they will eventually spin out because they just realize that you need to become cynics and stay in Topeka and Washington, D.C. and learn how to use a system for themselves. Or they just go back home thinking, well, I tried, you know, Washington. You can't do it there, really. But if you're going to stick with and deepen a sense of vocation over time, you have to make peace with proximate justice. So the book is about that in a more fulsome book-length way. It's my heart right now, what I'm reading about, thinking about, writing about every day. Well, that's fascinating. And I am thinking as you're talking about how that relates back to those three elements you mentioned, the, the, the yeah. need of a well-formed worldview and a mentor, maybe at a different season and a different yeah. type yeah. of mentor, but nonetheless, somebody in your life who can lead in those areas and then the, the community to be a part of. So right. it's fascinating how that all fits together. It does fit together, doesn't it? Well, see, this has been a great conversation. But besides reading the book or the, the books uh, you've mentioned, you've written on this, which I also highly recommend. But uh, where else can listeners go to get more information or to learn more about these ideas? Oh, um, boy. I mean, in one sense, I wish I could say, just come sit with me in my office. And let's talk about these things. I have a good rocking chair there. You could talk about it with me or you could come take a walk with me in my woods. I wish that was possible. It's not very possible. I every week have somebody from somewhere write me and say, can I talk to you more about these things? And I can't always say yes all the time initially, but I'm, I try to be responsive to people about that. And sometimes, like last night, I was the second conversation with somebody in the last couple of months who wrote me in the fall and said, I've been reading things you write. Can I ever talk to you about more about these things? And I said, well, let's talk at least one time just to see who we are. And then we've done it again. We promised to do it again in the next month. And because of the globalizing internet that we all live with all day long, it surprises me how much there's out there yeah. that I've taken part in. I've done podcasts like this probably every week for months and months of my life, actually. So conversations like this are available you know, from many different places and people. And, and the assumption is if somebody found this podcast, they can find those podcasts. Right. Yeah. Well, Steve, thanks for your time. This has been such a helpful and insightful conversation for me. And I know many of the listeners of this podcast. So we appreciate your service to the kingdom and love for Christ and help for those of us also on the journey. Oh, you're very welcome, Stan. It's good to be your friend still and to see your face again. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass the show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of this show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.